Manifesto Read, the manifestos analysed by the experts. Alright, so the last in the series. And the chunkiest, we've combined the economy and then the environment into one single podcast episode. That is pretty huge. It's bumper, but it's really interesting. Definitely. Um, and I think that you'll find that there's going to be quite a few segues in this episode. <laughs> This episode is going to be covering the economy and the environment, so two pretty hefty topics. And in the room this evening, we have some pretty esteemed guests who are going to introduce themselves shortly. So I will hand over to the first person who's going to introduce himself. Hi, my name's Timmy. I am a senior manager in software sales. I also have a couple of small businesses that are growing. And so the economy aspect of the manifesto is really interesting for me. I've also worked in big business in um, fast moving consumer goods. So the uh, ideas around how the government will be boosting the economy or how the different parties intend to boost the economy is of particular interest. My name's Sam. I'm an environmental lawyer at uh, the NGO Client Earth, which is uh, an NGO made up of lawyers who are using the law to advocate for the environment. Uh, I lead our coal litigation project. My name's Alice. I work for a a farming and rural business organisation, and I'm the lead on climate change for them. Um, My background's also law. I used to work in New Zealand for the government on climate change policy. Hi, my name's Matthew. I'm a UK and European patent attorney at a boutique intellectual property law firm. I've got a background in physics, so I sit in the engineering tech team there. One of my main areas of work is energy. Hi, my name is Afia, and I am the founder and managing director of Lime Hut, which is a small street food business. I've been running that for two years. However, prior to this, I did work in finance in the city, primarily in the energy and resources industry. So I have a background in oil, gas, mining, energy, utilities, and renewables. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm a vice president for a boutique natural resources focused bank in London. I used to actually work as a geologist in the mining sector, but now focus on the investment advisory and corporate finance side. Excellent. So what we're going to do now is we're going to make a start with the economy. What happens at this point is that we do a quick run through for the key headlines of the big three parties. So T, if you'd like to just take us through summarising the big three, so their headline economic policies, um, you can include in that taxation as well. And then we will have a discussion around the table. On the economy, uh, a few key headlines from the Conservatives. You know, they're looking for 80% of UK trade to be covered by free trade agreements. So a massive um, follow on from Brexit talks. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that we're already having to think about post-Brexit and and it's absolutely essential. They're also looking at 10 new free ports, retaking their WTO seat for the UK, supporting startups and small business via government procurement and clamping down on late payments to businesses whilst also expanding startup loans. Labour's key policies on the economy are to nationalise Royal Mail, railways, buses, water and energy, to also fund or to support a new public fibre broadband service. Uh, They have plans for a £400 billion transformation fund for schools, hospitals, houses, energy, transport and the environment, and a national investment bank, as well as aiming to tackle what they call short-term greed. And lastly, the Liberal Democrats on the economy intend to invest £130 billion on transport, energy, 
energy, schools, hospitals, homes, including a £5 billion green investment bank to boost low carbon investment. They also have the ambition to increase research and development spend to 3% of GDP and create a startup allowance for new entrepreneurs. On taxation, Conservatives aim to raise the national insurance threshold to £9,500 from next year, with an ultimate ambition of increasing to £12,500, possibly because Boris said it by accident. I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) They aim to have a triple lock on personal taxation, so no increase in rates of income tax, national insurance or VAT for individuals. And aim to fund day-to-day spending through taxation, whilst increasing borrowing to, as they say, invest thoughtfully and responsibly in infrastructure. So on taxation, Labour intends to introduce no rises for 95% of people. They also expect to bring in a windfall from tax on oil companies. They want to raise tax for 80,000 plus earners, which I believe is the top 5% of earners nationally. And they want to freeze national insurance and income taxes for all others at the same time. They want to reverse inheritance tax cut and increase corporation tax to 26% in 2022, back to previous levels, and also scrap the marriage tax allowance and put a 200% tax on second homes. Liberal Democrats aim to restore corporation tax to 20%, abolish capital gains tax and tax all income in one go, replace business rates in England with a commercial landowner levy and toughen digital sales tax, aiming at big online corporations, while similarly also scrapping the marriage tax allowance. So what are our thoughts? Quite a lot to digest there. Personally following on, I think that the different parties are really aiming their taxation at different objectives. You know, it's quite a common theme through the economy section of all these manifestos that you can see that the Conservatives are looking at protecting big business and, and, you know, there's no intention to raise corporation tax there, whilst both Labour and the Lib Dems want to raise corporation tax to fund other spending. But at the same time, for the individual, you're kind of stuck in the middle because, you know, Labour are wanting to tax higher earners more, uh, Conservatives not so much, but then they're also trying to make it easier for people at the bottom with the increase in national insurance. Uh, so it, it really is, if you want to be taxed for the benefit of the many, then that's where the Labour manifesto especially comes into play. If you as an individual, especially a high earning individual, are thinking about both yourself and your perhaps also your business from a tax perspective, then the Conservative manifesto makes absolute sense to to go with on taxation especially. I'd probably say the Lib Dems are somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've definitely looked at the manifestos through a slightly different lens, specifically as a small owner managed business and being a self-employed person. And I think it's very clear based on uh, the points you've raised there that all three parties are addressing this in very different ways and that therefore manifests itself in sort of winning points in some areas, losing points heavily in other areas. The reason I talk about winning points and losing points is um, I've been the big geek extraordinaire and I've actually created a matrix for the Conservatives, Labour and Lib Dem. Check you out. Someone <laughs> just call it thorough. <laughs> Done some thorough work and I can talk you through these points now. So specifically for the self-employed, Lib Dems are looking to expand rights and benefits that people within work receive for self-employed people such as parental leave and maternity paternity pay. Labour are looking to also increase new securities for self-employed people, including free childcare and better access to mortgages and pension schemes. Conservatives seem to have sort of waved over it 
glossed over it a bit by saying they will launch a review on how to better support self-employed entrepreneurs. So it's sort of a zero detail there from the Conservatives. Regarding small business, the Conservatives who uh, previously sort of made fun of Labour for uh, saying they're going to increase the real living wage to £10 an hour have actually surpassed that and said that the national living wage under a Conservative government will be £10.50 an hour. The Lib Dems haven't pinned themselves down to a particular per hour fee but have said they will conduct an independent review on living wages across sectors um, I think that's interesting because it shows that they actually realise that different sectors have different problem areas. The big one, I suppose, for lots of small businesses, especially with the death of the high street, is chat on uh, business rates. And the Lib Dems have said they're going to replace business rates with a land levy. This will put the burden away from the tenant and onto the landowner, which I think is quite progressive. And the Conservatives have said they will cut the burden of tax by reducing business rates. Labour have said nothing. So take from that what you will. In terms of sort of bold pioneering or perhaps a groundbreaking economic policy, I looked to see what the biggest headline was from each of the, the three main parties. And the Conservatives have sort of gone for a... I've given them two uh, two headlines here. We've got an increase in R&D credits up to 13%, which will definitely help businesses investing in technological advances. And they've also said they're going to double the maximum prison sentence for tax evasion. I guess this is them showing that they're getting heavy handed with sort of wealthy people that are offshoring money. I don't know whether to take this with a pinch of salt or not, given that in 2017, there were only for arrests for the most egregious tax evasion cases. It, it feels a bit tokenistic. Lib Dems offering a skills wallet for all people. So at age of 25, you will receive £4,000 to further your skill set and education. You will receive £3,000 at the age of 40 and a further £3,000 at the age of 55. What are people's thoughts on this? I found the yeah. age, age brackets of this quite interesting. The age brackets are interesting, but the idea is actually really good. And, and I think, again, coming back to where, if anything, Labour and Lib Dems, shock horror, are closer to each other's policies than the Conservatives are, I think a big part of that is also that the Conservatives think that they're doing okay on employment. So, you know, they love to shout about highest employment rates for 40 years or so, I think they're claiming, where Labour and Lib Dem will counter that by saying that, yes, you have high employment, but it's low-paid jobs, low-paid, low skills, lots of zero-hours contracts. And that's where the skills wallet comes in, because the idea there is really to upskill the workforce and get people into more, the jobs that essentially we need more of because we're losing so much in manufacturing, we're losing out so much in, in terms of competition with uh, Asia and, and even other parts of Europe and even America. You know, I was amazed to see that uh, our GDP per capita has been slowing, if not declining, whilst America's has been rising, where you'd probably say we have quite similar labour forces. But there seems to have been greater investment in that skills gap stateside than there has been here. So I actually definitely agree with the Lib Dems on the idea of a skills wallet. I do think that in having that in the manifesto, I think that they've done something that perhaps the other two parties haven't done, which is what you say is to identify that there is a skills gap. And without filling that gap, a lot of the aims and targets are fairly meaningless because especially with the way that technology is accelerating and, you know, there are things that will become relevant to all sectors, things like artificial intelligence and robotics that traditionally would never have been learned by the huge number of people. By introducing the skills wallet, it gives people an opportunity to update their skill set and it provides a sort of route towards achieving the targets that we always see in these manifestos, but that aren't always explained. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think bizarrely, not bizarrely, but I, I've been pleasantly surprised reading this, that the Lib Dems probably seem to have what I would consider a really progressive policy on upskilling the workforce, where Labour, if anything, are probably looking at making the workforce happier with, you know, better pay for less work, the idea of a 32-hour working week, which, you know, I think companies like Microsoft have trialled it in the UK and it was successful, their productivity increased. To roll that out nationwide is quite risky. Yes, well-being levels would definitely be higher. I'm not sure the whole labour force would be more productive as a result. So, so there's a funny balancing act there between, you know, ensuring that you have a healthy and happy workforce, but also ensuring that you have an upskilled and capable workforce, which is probably where the Lib Dems have gone more. Absolutely. I would also just point out, I didn't really know what to call these policies, so I've called them people-pleasing policies. And I sort of looked at the, <laughs> the people-pleasing policies within all three manifestos. And some of them seem to sort of be a very good progressive policy, and others sort of missed the mark. Specifically, a, a good one from the Conservatives is that the government want to offer support to startups via government procurement. And as a small business owner, the one thing that I have learned in the, the early stages of my business is the best way friends can support your business is by paying full price and helping you grow financially. I think this is an example of that. I'm not saying the Conservative government is every startup's best friend, but the way you do support businesses is by giving them contracts. So I think this is actually a really good policy. Labour want to ban zero hours contracts completely. I think they've missed the mark here a bit, especially when you compare it to Lib Dem's policy on zero hour contracts, which is to offer a 20% higher minimum wage for those on zero hour contracts. I think what that does is actually acknowledges the uncertainty that comes with having a zero hours contract, a bit like being a self-employed person. There comes lots of uncertainty about when your next paycheck is coming in because you've got to, yeah, you're taking on the risk. So I think that's a really good one from the Lib Dems. I think where the Conservatives have also missed the mark a bit, in their manifesto, they have a statement that says, we want to see more female and BAME entrepreneurs, which I think we can all agree is a wonderful thing in itself but just saying that you want to see it without explaining how you're going to work towards that is a, a bit lackluster and tokenistic especially when the following sentence talks about the success of the CIS and EIS scheme um, which is the seed enterprise investment scheme when in 2018 only 19% of funding into startups were for women backed businesses it doesn't really scream a success story to me. With all that borne in mind I want to move on to the costing um, of these policies, these economic policies. Um, and we'll kind of derive some more thoughts on whether we think that the mathematics is grounded in reality or not. Um, and it would be interesting to hear our panelists' thoughts on that. Well, I think there's two, two elements to this. And one is um, where the money's coming from and, and what it's being spent on. Everyone can see there's a clear policy from Labour to be taxing wealth. Um, and changing policy to allow for that. Um, with CGT going up uh, to the income tax rate, inheritance tax reversal, as we discussed earlier, um, and levy on, on other assets um, with houses, but at the same time penalising what could be called hard work through those methods is being spent on something like a 35-hour working week where those that don't work for the, work more than 35 hours get penalised to pay for the people that are working less. Um, I think that's probably a topic for debate here on, on whether people think it's necessary to suggest that people should be working 35 hours a week or whether that should be 
left up to a decision for the the government to be making that public sector workers should be working less hmm. <laughs> i think um it really depends on on the industry i mean uh, when i used to work it in a corporate you know there were times that we would work nine to five but there were also times when you're working nine till midnight and it's about meeting the demands of the business if the business demands can be met um in a is it a 32 hour week i believe I yeah. I sorry. yeah 32 yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah. um so yeah if the demands can be met um with a 32 day week then by all means let's well, that's a long week. Uh, that's a... Well, Maybe 32 hours. Oh, did I say Clearly I need coffee. You have a time machine. Uh, <laughs> I think they tried uh, banning weekends yeah. in uh, Soviet Russia and it didn't work too well. Okay, so if you fair enough. five of them in yeah. a row... Yeah, okay, we won't do that then. Sorry, a 32-hour week. Um, then by all means, um, let everyone spend more time with their families, get more balance, uh, well-being. I don't think it's necessarily the right move to sort of inflict the nanny state on uh, as a blanket rule. Very clearly, there are some industries that that just doesn't make sense for at all. However, there does have to be something said for the success stories of some sort of pretty cool millennial, millennial startups that offer a sort of unlimited holiday or not specific working hours to their staff so that they can have a flexible, agile working life. Um, it doesn't mean they don't get the job done. It doesn't mean that actually most people are on a holiday for... 352 days of the year I think what you actually find is people just respect the fact that their time is respected but they get on with the job and meet the business demands as they need to. To me it's clear that if it's going to cost 35 billion pounds to bring in this policy it's not improving productivity because you're having to pay for it. The the, the idea that this whole thing is is increasing output from every person to me just can't be true. They're, they're two slightly different points, though. I mean, you, you can invest cash, as it were, from their perspective to increase productivity, and you would see people producing more in four days compared to five. You know, I mean, as I said, Microsoft have done it uh, on a trial basis. I, I remember hearing of another small business in the UK that did it, and they essentially found that making people work four days instead of five, they just got more done. And, and they felt like, you know, having that third day uh, either as part of their weekend or as an extra day in the middle of the week, um, it, it just spurred them on. And maybe over time you would lose the impact of that, I don't know, but, but the examples that I've seen has definitely been quite a, quite a fast impact from, from cutting down working time. But I think also, how are they gonna roll this out in different sectors? I mean, I can't imagine if we started making doctors work four days a week that they're gonna be able to be any more productive than they are already. And I think that's probably the same for police officers on the beat and, and roles where you're working constantly and there's no more output you can give. But I, I agree with your point. I think also we should have a quick chat about the idea of the kind of nanny state and the benefit of returning a lot of assets to, to the public and whether we think that is a, a good use of cash. That's a bit of a different question from nanny state though, isn't it? There's nanny state and then there's a, a nationalizing government yeah, I think they're quite yeah. separate. Yeah, the costings, especially when you look costings-wise, particularly at the Conservatives and Labour, they're taking quite different approaches. You know, Labour, to be quite frank, are just spending as much as they possibly can. It's a little bit frightening when you look at how much they're intending to spend across all of their policies. And, and you know, it's, it's absolutely not met by 
increases in taxation on the other side, you know, as much as they're increasing tax for the, the top 5% um, and increasing corporation tax, it still won't go anywhere near covering what is needed. And so there will be an increase in, um, in national debt. But I guess it's that, that catch-22 of, you know, feeling like, because I know and I've seen firsthand in business that Brexit has without doubt slowed down the economy. There's, there's not a question about that. How much do you semi-remortgage our national debt to push the economy again? Or how much uh, closer to the Conservatives' costing ideas do you, you know, take a more piecemeal approach and, and not try and do everything in one go, not try and overspend, uh, but just balance the books almost as it were. And I guess the interesting point is that over the last nine years, is that's, that's essentially a latter is essentially what we've seen. Um, you might debate the um, success of that approach. And I guess obviously what you're seeing with Tory policies that they've loosened the belt a bit in terms of fiscal discipline, but to what extent that's actually going to reboot the economy, particularly post-Brexit is open to a massive debate. Whilst I don't necessarily agree with just borrowing your way out of this, I think one thing you've always got to consider when we're talking about everything we're talking about tonight and in all these other debates and policies is that not everything will get implemented and they certainly won't be able to do everything. Everything will get voted on anyway in Parliament. So there is a kind of safety net for that. However, I agree that it is an awful lot to spend, you know, the nationalisation, which we'll come on to later, is going to cost 124 billion. This WASPY pension refunding is going to cost 67 billion, which isn't even in the manner. I love how Jeremy Corbyn was just like, they've just got to be compensated. It's going to happen. You know, we're going to spend it. And then when I think it was, it was, then watch the um, Andrew Marr um, Corbyn interview. So how are you going to pay for it? And he literally just kind of just kept on regurgitating, well, it, they need to be compensated without any kind of notion as to how that was going to be paid for. And I think you mentioned earlier to me about how frightening is probably the accurate word as to, you know, how is all of this stuff going to be paid for? And I think that's probably why costing is so important because how is all of this costed? I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think any party's kind of really answered that question in a way that satisfies me personally. I'm speaking from personal perspective. I don't think Labour can really cost it, to be perfectly frank. I think they are working on the premise that our country is too big to default at any point. And so if there really is a serious funding issue, the debt will grow but we'll stay afloat because we have to. Sovereign debt bondholders probably disagree with that, but we'll see if that happens. Uh, you know, they, they certainly believe that large corporations and wealthy people will pay for it for everyone else, but wealthy people and multinational companies are bloody smart and they know where to go and what to do and they know that it won't always be like that and they can come back at some point. I think... There's very good evidence to show that at times when corporation tax and capital gains tax has been increased, there's not necessarily been as a, a, a relative um, rise in revenues for the for HMRC. And I think, you know, especially on the on the capital gains tax, people hold investments for a long time. And the only time they get taxed for capital gains purposes is when they realize that investment and they'll just hold on to that investment longer until policy changes, which actually reduces revenue for the for the for HMRC and is is essentially not a good method of raising money. All it does is actually remove a lot of private wealth and capital and corporate wealth away from this country and will eventually result in in less less investment here and less money for the, the HMRC. Yeah, I think the key focus, especially from Labour's taxation, is, is in corporation tax. You know, it is quite a dramatic increase. 
Corbyn would love to tell you that it's just back to the same levels that, that it has been previously, which, which it is, in fairness. But I think they would see uh, a fair bit of revenue coming from that specifically. You know, there are only so many companies that can move out of the UK for tax purposes. There are only so many that can relocate to Dublin or wherever it might be more favourable. Whereas the Conservatives, I think they're being very nice to big business, which is fair enough and it reflects who their biggest donors are probably as well. They are being a little less nice than they have been in the past though, because they did talk about lowering the rate to 17% for corporations and they've backtracked on that. I think they saw public appetite for that wasn't quite as as high as they perhaps expected. And um, I believe in the manifesto it's set now at a at 19%. But one thing I noticed throughout the Labour manifesto was that there was no um, positivity towards the word profit. I don't know why there's such negativity around the world, the words. In fact, it kind of promotes investment and, and helps grow the whole economy in general. And I think one actual overall thing is I think very few businesses have been consulted in a lot of these manifestos and and taken their view on how, how they should be listened to and what their role is in the whole process. Um, and that's not just from a Labour or a Tory, that's th- across the board. The Conservatives do seem to value the idea of investment um, and growth and preservation of wealth. And I think... I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. As I agree with you to an extent, but I think with um, the, the tones I've taken from the, the three manifestos is that actually the Conservatives have been a bit safe and a bit old hat. Uh, quite lacklustre um, and at times very tokenistic, whereas Labour, I think perhaps a little naively, have focused only on workers. They seem to, as I, as I said before, sort of not reward the brave um, and uncertain route that entrepreneurs take. That said, in fairness to them, it very much aligns with their motto of for the many, not the few. So you are getting what it says on the tin with them. They that That is what they want to do. And there are obviously fewer self-employed people than there are workers. The Lib Dems, however, I think are the only ones that have, have actually uh, got a progressive show of support for entrepreneurs and actually understand the way in which the workforce is changing. I think the others are, are very retrospective. I do, however, think the one aspect we haven't touched on that I think will lead us nicely into the environment as well is Labour's perhaps golden ticket policy, depending on how you look at it, about the green industrial revolution. So let's move on to that then. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to outline in greater detail? Okay, well, um, so I've got um, a view of it, again, from a sort of a business point of view, but obviously I thought we were moving on to environment, but we can move on to the environment on the back of that. So the Green Industrial Revolution is a sort of, I guess, replacing uh, what happened in the, the 18th, oh no, sorry, the 19th century, uh, with the, the Great Industrial Revolution that spurred the UK's economy massively and decarbonising it, looking at renewables and essentially creating a huge industrial revolution that is pro-green, pro-environmental. The way in which Labour is showing its support for its social environmental impact mission is to also help it, I guess, rejig our economy. Um, So there will be, uh, banks will be mandated to lend in line with the mission to decarbonise our economy. They will also enable thousands of bottom-up startup-led changes, as well as large-scale national and regional projects. Uh, Labour will be investing in three new gigafactories and four metal processing plants. Plus, there will be a new plastics remanufacturing business to help keep plastic out of our oceans, um, thus creating hundreds of thousands of skilled jobs.
jobs. Again, touching on our point earlier, that the yeah. Lib Dems have actually seen that we need to, it's all very well creating skilled jobs, but we need to fill this skills gap. Yeah, that's creating hundreds of thousands of skilled jobs. So it's uh, an important policy that a lot of, I won't say a lot of people, but particularly young people care about, but they've actually managed to link this to rejigging the economy as well, which I think is perhaps a, a very sensible way uh, to get people on board if you talk about what's in their pockets. I have one important question on that, which is, what is a gigafactory? That's a very good question. I think you said there'd be three new gigafactories, but I don't know what a gigafactory is. I assume it's something high-tech. <laughs> I think it's a, a really large high-tech factory. It's a lithium-ion battery and electric vehicle sub-assembly line. Oh, sorry, I didn't know. Yeah, because of um, uh, decarbonising motor vehicles, uh, so electric car plants. Well, we just lost an electric car plant to Germany. Well, that worked out nicely, didn't it? That leads very nicely into the environment. And so what I'm going to ask is that you give us an outline of each of the three parties' flagship policies in this area. Yeah, so uh, my name is Sam. I'm an environmental lawyer at the legal NGO Client Earth, where we are using the law to advocate for better protection of the environment. Working on the UK is actually only one aspect of my work, and I, I do a lot of work around Southern and Eastern Europe. And what's actually really interesting is the level of debate in the UK around climate change and the environment and so on is really pretty high compared to what we see in, in a lot of the countries where we're working. So my name's Alice, and um, I'm coming at the kind of environment side from more of a land use perspective, I'm working for farmers and landowners around England and Wales. Um, so what's quite important, I think, in a lot of this is that basically when you're looking at um, climate change, when you're looking at biodiversity, a lot of it is you're basically relying on landowners and farmers and people who have sort of control over land to deliver a lot of these environmental objectives. I think a lot of people forget that there's not a lot of room in urban areas to be planting a lot of trees. There's not necessarily a whole lot of new species that we can introduce into London, but there is plenty of that kind of work you can do in the countryside, basically. So it's quite important that we make sure we um, think about farmers and landowners as we kind of look at all these environmental policies. And I think, I mean, we briefly had a chat before and looking at the policies rather than going through party by party we were just going to pick out a few policy areas perhaps um, and that's partly because all the manifestos of the three main parties have a huge amount on the environment in them and what we're seeing at the moment is almost a race to the top in terms of environmental protection which is somewhat unprecedented quite exciting though it's yeah. exciting and I, I think everybody would agree from, from whatever political background they're from that the protecting environment is something we can all we can all agree as being really important. And really the question is how to do it, how far to go in certain areas, not whether it's worth having a natural planet that survives with us. I was going to talk about two or three of the areas, and then I think, Alice, you were going to talk about a couple of others. And so just put, putting out some of the, the, the sort of the headline points in a few areas, I think one of the most talked about and policies, if we're going to call it a policy, more, more of an ambition perhaps, concerns this idea of a net zero uh, economy. So that's as an economy where, or a country, a society, uh, where we are overall uh, not contributing to the emission of greenhouse gases. So uh, on the one hand, uh, you massively reduce how carbon intensive the country is. And on the other hand, uh, you do certain things to take the carbon out of the air. And taking the carbon out of the air might be through uh, planting of trees, and we'll talk a bit more about that, um, or you know, other interventions in the natural environment, or it might be through relying upon some 
uh, technology to actually suck that carbon out of the air or capturing carbon uh, at, at the source of emissions, perhaps on, on, on power plants or so on. A lot of those policies are a little bit, um, or those technologies, those ideas are a little bit controversial um, and uncertain, but some of them perhaps are less controversial. And, and one that you know, uh, is particularly interesting because so many of the parties have really gone for it is the planting of, of a lot of trees. In terms of the net zero policies that uh, the parties uh, have adopted, all of them have adopted a target for, for having a net zero economy. The Conservatives uh, have gone for 2050, which which is the current state of the law. Um, so they're suggesting they would uh, keep working towards what, what's already in law. Uh, Lib Dems have brought that forward by five years to, to 2045. And Labour, having voted at conference for a, a 2030 date, have gone a little bit woolier on that and said sometime in the 2030s they want us to be on course for a, a, a net zero uh, economy. Um, so all of them have got something on there. The interesting question is not so much who can have the closest date, which is still a long way in the future, um, but rather who's actually going to implement policies that will get us there. And that that's really the million dollar question. How do you actually do any of this stuff? What we've seen over the last sort of 10, 20 years is a, is, is a pretty significant drop in, in the carbon intensity of our power system. Um, that, that's been the easy win in terms of decarbonizing our economy. Coal is no longer making money. Plants are shutting down and, and, and so on. But what do we do about the transport sector? What do we do about the rest of the energy sector? What do we do about housing? We have a lot of very inefficient homes uh, in terms of energy efficiency. Whilst all the parties have, have all the three main parties have something to say about uh, those things, none of them are really able to show exactly how they're going to achieve this sort of net zero uh, position. I mean, all the sectors are going to be quite hard to reduce to zero, but there's often considered a couple of hard-to-treat sectors, um, one of which is agriculture, the other is often considered to be aviation, where it's just going to be more or less impossible to get those sectors to zero emissions. Agriculture, because most of the emissions that it contributes to climate change are part of kind of biological processes. Like, unless we don't want to eat, we're just there's always going to be a base level of, of emissions there. So the really important part there is how we're going to get to net zero and yeah, absorb that carbon back out of the atmosphere and store it either temporarily or almost permanently in soils and in trees. So trees have just become like the hot topic. Everyone is talking about trees at the moment. And naturally, in all their manifestos, they chose to talk about them in completely different ways. Some talked about, uh, so Labour said they want to plant 300 million trees. With, uh, that was in Britain, with a target of reaching 1 billion by 2030 and 2 billion by 2040. Um, I think then the Conservatives started talking about it in acres of trees. So it's quite hard to start comparing them when they talk about them in all different kind of contexts. But they're aiming for an additional 75,000 acres of trees a year. And then the Lib Dems want 60 million trees a year. So when you try and compare them all, none of it really makes any sense. But what it comes down to is a lot of trees. And actually they've all gone for targets that are in line with what the Committee on Climate Change has recommended we need. So the Committee on Climate Change has said that if we want to reach net zero, which is feasible, um, we need 1.5 million hectares of trees by 2050. And all of the political parties have basically gone for those targets, which is, is it's extremely ambitious given that that's looking 30,000 hectares of trees a year and current planting rates are less than 9,000 hectares a year. So we're not even remotely close to doing that. And none of them have actually talked about any policies to help landowners 
get there basically they've there's huge barriers at the moment to getting trees in the ground um the finances are obviously quite a big issue with um a tree crop you essentially plant it and then you've got to wait 20 30 40 50 years before you start seeing a return on it and you know that's that's quite difficult for a lot of um, landowners, especially given that the average age, I think, is about 65. So, you know. The landowners uh, or the trees? The landowners. <laughs> um, so, you know, asking a 65-year-old to do, to plant something, or yeah, to get involved in an investment, essentially, where they're not going to see any returns on it for, you know, well past their... <laughs> yeah. Sell by date, yeah. But there's also a big question about what sort of trees you're planting and where you're planting them. Because the mo you know, there's there's a lot of kind of ecosystems that, that can be quite good from a, a sort of carbon retention perspective, which may not have the highest density of trees, but they might overall be quite a, a sort of carbon sink ecosystem. Whereas if you have a monoculture plantation of some fast growing tree which are, you know, chopping down quickly before it gets particularly mature. Um, that that might not have such a sort of you know beneficial impact. I I don't know. So how are these policy working? Like how are they choosing the land by where they're going to be planting these trees, and how does that tie in with um, the hundreds of thousand houses that we're meant to be building throughout? That is an extremely good question that they have definitely not answered yet. Right. But I think there's there's space for the trees and there's space for the houses. There are there, there's, yeah, there's, there's plenty of land for all of it. Currently we have I think it's around thirteen uh, percent of the country is covered in woodland, which is almost the lowest across the entire of Europe. Um, mm. I think Malta is a bit lower, but generally everyone else is higher. Most countries, I think, are around sort of 30% or more. We're aiming to get to about 19%. So, so it's not a big increase in sort of global terms. Well, yeah, it is and it isn't. It would look like quite a big change to the landscape, which I think a lot of people aren't that comfortable with. I mean, the land is there. The issue is that it's a lot more profitable to be farming it. But in terms of comparing the manifestos, I think the answer is nobody's really answered these questions in detail. Um, so that's for the future. Where do we put the trees? What type of trees? No, nobody's really answered that. Time to call the next election then. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. One of the quite important policies that the um, all three of the political parties are talking about, though, that will come into this is so at the moment... Um, Farmers and landowners in this country are paid um, subsidies that come from the EU. So once we leave the EU, those subsidies are essentially going to end and they're going to be replaced with a system that pays them for the public goods that they provide. So public goods means really whatever you want it to mean, but we know that it does mean climate change mitigation, means climate change adaptation, um, biodiversity, uh, flood prevention, all that kind of stuff. So trees will probably be a really big part of that. So it's likely that in some way, shape or form, there'll be money in it for landowners to get involved in tree planting. So that's promising. And do all parties agree on that? Yeah, all of them have basically said that they want to go in that direction um, to different extents. So Labour have said that they're going to maintain agricultural and rural structural funds, but repurpose them to support environmental land management um, and sustainable methods of food production. It's quite exciting that they've put food production in there because often they start talking about the environment and forget the fact that most farmers are out there just trying to make food for people to eat and aren't necessarily, you know, solely there to support the environment. Um, Conservatives have been working towards this policy um, for the last, well, yeah, I think since Brexit was voted on. So they're just going to continue continue with the policies on that. Um, and then the Lib Dems have basically said the same thing, reduce basic agricultural support payments to the larger recipients and redeploy the savings to support public goods that come from effective land management. So it is quite interesting that they're all very much on the same page with this one. It'll just be how they deploy those funds, whether they um, pay for the same 
whether they consider public goods to be the same thing, what they all end up paying for, and whether it's the same amount of money that land managers are currently getting, which I think is about three billion pounds a year. The trees sound fantastic, but I- <laughs> <laughs> no one can argue with that. <laughs> Everyone loves trees. No, I won't, I won't hear a bad word about Everyone trees. Hug a tree. <laughs> it's been a long time since I got to climb a tree and etc. But I really do feel like, especially when you're wanting serious change on things like climate, surely it has to be led by innovation. And, and yeah. in a weird way, it does tie in quite nicely to talk about the economy and the environment together. You know, who is doing the most on encouraging business to be proactive about this? I know the Lib Dems are looking at electric cars, which would obviously see an increase in their production. Um, Labour are looking at creating a million green jobs, as they call them, across the country. And the Conservatives want to um, do a lot on energy efficient homes. Like, where, where do you think the different parties are in terms of pushing the economy to actually drive climate change as well? Yeah, so I mean, I think sort of three three interesting areas from an economic perspective in particular are um, the energy system, the transport system, and housing. So I mean, you you mentioned you mentioned cars. Um, all all three parties have a, a a date in mind for prohibiting the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles. We so enjoy them while we can. <laughs> what, what are the dates of those? I'm a bit of a petrol head, so yeah. Well, um, buy your Ferrari before 2030 if we have a Labour or Lib Dem government. Got a decade. Um, so you know. Stock them up. Um, <laughs> well, we've already got Formula already E, got haven't we? So, you know, if we've got Formula E, soon we're going to be driving electric Porsches. Um, electric Ferrari. <laughs> Ferrari one. La Ferrari actually is electric, sorry. So, so 2030 for Labour and the Lib Dems, um, prohibiting the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles for, for, for the Conservatives, 2040. I think the, the, that um, the, the sort of the economists and scientists and so on um, have, have estimated that uh, electric vehicles will generally be better from a cost perspective from around 2030. So an the earlier date might seem more persuasive, both from an economic and from an environmental perspective. Uh, obviously, the real issue with petrol and diesel is, yes, there's the climate impact. Also, um, there's the air quality impacts, which is why we've seen uh, the government uh, taking steps to comply with the law around reaching air quality goals in, in cities. And all, all three parties have something to say about that. As, as we see, in fact, on, on so many of the environmental issues, everyone's kind of pushing in the same direction. Um, but generally speaking, what we're seeing is that, that Labour and the Lib Dems have earlier targets for achieving these things and the Conservatives have uh, later dates when they're trying to uh, achieve them by. One thing that I find uh, particularly interesting is the emphasis on electric vehicles and uh, electric private vehicles. What's really interesting is what are we doing about public transport? Um, and I think nobody is really telling a particularly compelling story about trying to transform the entire way we approach uh, transport in the country. Um, should we be encouraging an economy uh, where everybody uh, aspires to and can have an electric vehicle? Is that the kind of uh, economy and society we want? Or do we want one with a really comprehensive public transport infrastructure that reduces the need of people to rely upon uh, private transport. The environmental benefits of that, I think, are pretty clear. Um, the resource implications of uh, putting all the batteries in all these electric vehicles uh, are pretty significant, um, just as one example. Um, and, and there's many other kind of environmental issues, even around electric vehicles. They're still a lot better than, than petrol and diesel in almost every respect. In terms of the energy sector, again, um, Everybody wants more renewables. There's no question about that. All, all of them uh, promising big investment uh, or big support for 
renewables. Um, I think you know Labour is looking to have an energy system, electricity system, which is 90% renewable by 2030. Uh, the Lib Dems are 80% by 2030. Um, the Conservatives' emphasis is a little bit different. It's talking in terms of gigawatts of new renewable capacity. Um, but the effect is their, their level of ambition is about one third of that of Labour by 2030. And the Conservatives, as has been the case for a while now, are completely opposed to onshore wind, uh, whereas um, the other parties are open to that as being part of the mix alongside what everybody wants, which is a, which is a, a lot of offshore wind. But with offshore wind and other renewables, we have this question of energy storage. Yes. My name is Matthew. Um, I'm a patent attorney, um, but with a focus in the energy sector. Actually, throughout a lot of this discussion, we've spotted gaps in you know, implementation. There are lots of great numbers and ideas and things like that, but that, and that's all well and good. But I think there's a really significant one here when we start talking about renewables, um, particularly things like offshore wind and solar is mentioned, I think, in all three manifestos. Um, is that these are, as everybody knows, these are intermittent forms of energy, particularly in this country. I was pretty surprised slash shocked uh, to see that there was a real lack of appreciation in any of the manifestos for um, clean and effective energy storage, which is critical if we're going to harness most renewables. I, I don't think any manifesto mentioned energy storage more than twice, and if they did, it was a passing mention. So it's really... Another one of those points where it's easy to, you know, start to get enthusiastic about about the numbers and, and, and some of the dates and, you know, investment. But then you sort of take a step back and you think, well, hang on, how, how are we going to get there? And, and I really think that this is one of those areas. And, and do you think, if we just think about it, that, do we think that a lot of this is then people-pleasing propositions that, uh, that yeah, I would forward. say so. I would say so. And, and We've spoken about tokenism a lot, haven't yeah. we? In this, in the it's difficult to know whether it whether it is um, a deliberate omission or if there's a genuine lack of understanding or lack of knowledge on the subject, because that's a pretty striking gap. I would say, if, if we're talking about harnessing renewable energy, for me, energy storage is the first thing that springs to mind. Basically, I mean, I agree that it's 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 a bit of a kind of whatever the opposite of an elephant in the room is. There's no elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I don't think the the ambition to invest or in or, or support renewables is is a tokenistic thing or a people pleasing policy that there's no intention to follow up on. And um, the level of commitment from all the parties is pretty big uh, and. You know, if you just look at the economics of it, renewables are getting cheaper and cheaper and, and are increasingly cost competitive with any alternative to renewables, such as gas. So it's clear that's the direction we'll be going in. I think it's also worth adding that this can't just be led by the government. There has to be private sector investment to this as well, and it has to follow suit. And for that to really take off, it has to be a competitive sector for, for private wealth to come into. And that actually plays back into what we were talking earlier about corporation tax, which is it's not going to promote investment um, if these companies can't get returns on their investment. And there, I don't know if there were specific tax breaks for um, investment in renewables or in the sector. You know, one thing I was thinking about the other day, I was thinking while I was cycling was rather than doing very, some very kind of environmentally friendly. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah just, I thought I'd drop that in there. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not even electric bikes. Um, <laughs> um, was, you know, this windfall tax on the oil and gas sector, I mean, would it not actually be better to give tax breaks to oil and gas companies when they re they invest in R&D or invest in diverting their business to something else like power? 
mean, I know companies like BP and and Shell have had a massive massive investment programs in in moving into power bp have just launched a floating solar field um and also into energy storage so kind of bringing that all together i think there needs to be a sensible way for the the private sector to invest alongside the government where they can get the same kind of returns that they can get on other investments, particularly the same ones that they can get in the oil and gas sector. And that's going to come with more money being spent into R&D, where the cost of capital of building these projects comes down. But I, I don't know what you, you Well, I mean, I, I think on, on the big oil and gas companies, um, their advertising has obviously worked because uh, you seem convinced that they're investing in, in these these alternative um, technologies. The reality is that represents a small fraction of that annual I'm capital sure it expenditure. It's not like this is something those companies are going hell for leather for. But I think they know that they, they won't be able to survive as entities if they don't start changing their business plan and, and their business models. It can't happen overnight. We know that all this can't happen overnight. We're not going to be carbon free by 2050 overnight. So it's going well, to no, take 20, 30 years, years to do yeah. it. Um, you know, I don't even know if people think that being carbon neutral by 2030 is actually achievable, whether it's another people pleasing tokenistic policy. Yeah, like talking about sort of people pleasing, I think um, the problem is like what you said there is uh, it's a very a uh, valid point, but I think public perception often trumps um, sort of people that have uh, expertise in, in, in a sort of industry level yeah, views. I think public perception often wins and public perception is oil and gas equals bad. Uh, you, you can see it throughout various realms of our society. I mean, even nowadays, if you want to invest in stocks and shares or have one of those tracker funds that sort of does all the work for you, you can now click a button to say you want to invest um, in businesses that have a social impact. And for some reason, that equals not investing in oil and gas at the moment. Um, and I it's can guess at what some of those yeah. reasons might be. <laughs> um, but I just mean that what's interesting is that there are other things that can uh, can you know form what is a good social impact, but public perception, which we do know why, is that oil and gas equals bad, and therefore I think to go back to your point, whilst it's valid, I think we're too far down. Oil and gas just equals bad. But I think I mean I think you know all of this has to be viewed in the context that that all three of the major party manifestos uh, acknowledge that there isn't just climate change; they all acknowledge there is a climate crisis, um, and climate crisis. It's a crisis. A crisis implies we need to do things urgently, which means we don't necessarily take the path of least resistance, but rather we pursue the things that need to be pursued in order to resolve that crisis, which I think is why, you know, there has to be something of an ambitious approach. And it's good to see that all three of the parties at least acknowledge this need and and slightly different extents are proposing taking steps in that direction. I mean, to, to be absolutely clear, like, the oil and gas sector is on the way down. I mean, I see it from the work I do in the investment in the sector is down, perception is down, people aren't lending to them anymore. And, you know, the, the North Sea is becoming increasingly difficult to eke any oil out of, and it's being sold to private companies and not multinationals. It's happening, it's changing, it's probably just not happening fast enough. A very nice segue in from your point just made. Can we um, discuss the different parties' approaches to fracking? Yeah, so the the approaches are are pretty simple. No party is in favour of fracking. All three parties are opposed to it. Labour and the Liberal Democrats have said that they will ban fracking, so I guess a permanent ban. Uh, The Conservatives, um, as the party of government, have already placed a moratorium, so a a kind of indefinite suspension on fracking and 
uh, their party policy is that uh, in their manifesto that this this moratorium will continue. So um, there's as as far as it is apparent from the manifestos, all, all three parties um, see no role for fracking um, in the economy. Sounds pretty straightforward. I don't necessarily agree with fracking. I'm just saying that I think the reason that it's been banned or given a moratorium is probably unjust. There's two elements to it. One, it's been given a moratorium or banned because of technical reasons, including earthquakes or um, being unsightly on land or a bit of nimbyism as well versus offshore oil and gas, which most people don't see. Um, and the second is we don't need any more oil and gas. Um, why do we need it onshore or on next to, next to my house? Both valid points. But actually, fracking itself is a lot less capital intensive than what it takes to build a, a rig offshore. And some people would actually say that it's a smarter investment where you are less likely to lose money and therefore leave a lot of other capital to be invested in other more certain projects. You know, the earthquakes that have happened in the UK as a result of fracking have been somewhat small. Um, and I think it's turned into a kind of bit of hysteria. I don't think anyone's even broken a glass doing it. It's definitely got a sense of hysteria around it in the UK. Um, it seems to have gone off pretty well in the UK, in the US, sorry. Um, it's been a massive success and has actually done a lot of favours for their economy. Um, it kickstarts a whole new kind of domestic revolution in domestic gas and oil supply. So, so I, I mean, I, I, that, a lot of that is probably true. I think the issue, though, is not so much around broken glasses as around a broken climate. Um, <laughs> and, yes. uh, you know... Yes, the fracking boom has done wonders from an economic perspective, perhaps in the US. Um, but what it has done is massively increase the uh, uh, reserves of fossil fuels that can now be exploited. Uh, there's an economic incentive on all these companies to exploit them. We have an oversupply of oil and gas, which is leading to an oversupply of plastics as these oil and gas companies are looking for markets um, to, to sell their, their product to. Uh, that oversupply of plastics leads to um, not just more climate change from the productions of the plastics, plus from the exploitation of the fossil fuels in the ground, but also to this epidemic of single-use plastics that we have at the moment, which is wrecking um, the, the natural world in so many different ways. So this is all part of a system of over-exploitation of the world's resources. And taking it back to the manifestos, wonderful. The Conservatives, the Labour and the Liberal Democrats all seem to recognise that fracking is something which uh, we should not be supporting in this country. So if we're talking about exploitation of natural resources, how do you feel about mining for battery metals that go into making energy storage, that go into electric cars, that go into copper for Absolutely. wiring and all that? I mean, that yeah, in yeah. itself is extremely damaging to the natural environment. I, I, I fully agree. And there's, 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 you know, real issues about how we manage the transition to a less carbon intensive global economic ecosystem um, and that's got to be done with the greatest possible care in in all those different areas you just mentioned uh, that that that's a real issue there's problems there that need to be solved i mean i'm just being devil advocate because the damage of burning fossil fuels is much worse than putting a scar in the ground and digging up a bit of lithium and i think in a nutshell that's it right we need we need to tackle climate change not just as the uk globally it's a huge issue um, and this goes back to my earlier point about you know do we really want all three parties encouraging everybody to buy an electric vehicle, or would we rather see parties putting front uh, of house the idea that we transition within this country and, and ultimately export globally a model of public transport-based movement rather than uh, the kind of historic American model of 
everyone's got a car and they load it up with gasoline and they go on these long journeys and listen to great music and go to the beach. Um, you know, you can get to the beach on a train. Yeah, I think that segues, again, notice the word segue, uh, quite nicely into what we were talking about earlier, which is, is how can we influence global policy? As you were saying, kind of less fossil fuel intensive, but less energy intensive. But how can we impact on Brazil deforestation and coral reef exploitation and overfishing? I mean, a lot of that is not on the manifestos, but it comes down to consumer choices. You know, if when there was all the um, fires in the Amazon, no one quite, I don't think, understood the fact that a huge amount of them were due to the fact that they were deforesting to plant soy crops and that soy was then getting exported to the UK to feed the cattle in the UK. So if you make a decision to, you know, not eat meat, for example that is a consumer choice that you're making that has a direct impact on the Amazon, for example. So (laughs) it does ultimately, um, a lot of this, yeah, isn't contained in the manifestos necessarily, but is all about consumer consumer choices. And we do have a huge amount of power, I think, as consumers. I don't know whether we want to get into the veganism thing. Let's but, not, please. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's in the manifesto. No, it's not in the manifesto. <laughs> no. Well, it, I mean, it, it is Wait, did anyone bit. check Brexit party? I don't know. <laughs> they might think veganism is a fad, I'm talking, not sure. They are all talking about a food strategy, and a big part of the food strategy is going to be promoting healthier diets, which is sort of universally accepted to mean a lower beet consumption. Um, definitely not veganism, I'll be clear on that. But yeah, I think I think that will be a huge... A huge part of it is, comes down to what we do as individuals. Sort of one last point. I think uh, what we've seen um, from the uh, environmental section of the three manifestos is they actually seem to agree a lot. You know, electric cars, good, fracking, bad. But another area that they agree on that I've noticed is a complete omission of something that has always been quite at the forefront of previous manifestos. I just feel like energy and utility bills specifically have always been used as a political football. I saw this um, a lot, especially when I worked in energy for four years. You know, the, the, the big six were always getting threatened with having to cap bills. And you'd always see big headlines across the papers that this particular party will save the average family household £86 on their bill. Um, why is it that this political football hasn't been used in this particular election? Well, they're still using it. But I think they've all adopted a pretty similar policy of saying that they're going to work on insulation and that they're going to insulate homes, insulate businesses, insulate schools, insulate hospitals so that energy bills come down. And to be perfectly frank, the reason I actually like that is because that creates jobs. You know, all of that work, the different parties say different amounts of jobs, but I think Labour talks about maybe um, 20,000 jobs just on insulation, if not more, maybe 100,000 even. And that's putting money back into the economy. So I'm actually a fan of that approach to, you know, bring down bills, but do it by introducing a long term fix, both in terms of energy efficiency and also in terms of creating jobs. And that's a brilliant answer because it takes us back to the environment, because energy efficiency, insulation, you know, one of the biggest issues we have in terms of decarbonising the, the British economy is um, the issue of housing, um, our, you know, Victorian terraces, which are leaking out huge amounts of um, heat uh, and how you actually retrofit all these houses with um, insulation is, is, is a massive question. And the link, linked to that is, is the issue of z- the zero carbon home standard, which was a, 
a policy I think was introduced by the last Labour government um, regarding you know the construction of new homes and building them to extremely high energy efficiency standards and even in certain cases you know you have renewables or low carbon energy sources on site so you end up with a zero carbon home that standard was was scrapped by the conservatives and uh, I, I think both Labour and the Liberal Democrats are now focusing on this issue again in their manifestos um, on the idea of building this this sort of low carbon or zero carbon housing stock the conservatives not seeming like they're going to reverse course anytime soon they've got a bad record on home building anyway and just to clarify the the figure in the Green Transformation Fund document from Labour was actually they would create 450,000 jobs making homes warmer. So, you know, That's fascinating such a input. refreshing and pragmatic approach to what has always just been a big headline winner, uh, mm. sort of just scaring people, saying your bills are going to go up when actually there's a reason that bills go up so we can reinvest in, you know, renewable research and development, but actually to, to give it a pragmatic approach approach is very refreshing to hear. Yeah. I mean, they have also said that they want to reduce average energy bills by £417 per household. Oh, they have. Okay, great. So So somehow they're doing both. (laughs) But I think that's through, as you say, through the the insulation and so on. Cool. Thank you guys so much. So what we're going to do now is actually we're going to go around the table and one by one ask you to outline which of the big three parties have provided the most compelling manifesto and you can answer for both the economy and for the environment and outline briefly your reasons why well my my employer prohibits me from stating a party political preference um because during election period if we do that we can get uh, uh, well we we we, we're covered by the lobbying uh, uh principles and we're not allowed to lobby so all i'll say is all three parties are acknowledging pretty similar needs in terms of direction of travel. Some are going uh, arguably a lot further than, than others um, in terms of what they're committing to do. Um, but what's, what's really great to see is, as I say, this is a race to the top. How often do you see that uh, when it comes to standards, uh, particularly environmental standards? And, and that's really to be welcomed. And on the economy, I'd say whoever's got the best policies on the environment automatically wins on the economy as well. Yeah, I would completely agree, actually, with Sam. I think it's fantastic to see them all um, aiming to get to net zero and, yeah, sort of competing about who can do it quickly, because I agree, we're in a climate crisis. You know, if we can do it by tomorrow, that would obviously be preferable. Um, But the sort of Lib Dem quite ambitious target, I think, is really fantastic. Obviously, I found Labour's manifesto is a lot more detailed than the Conservative one. Um, we were saying earlier, if we, if there was a drinking game where every time they said, once we've got Brexit done, this probably wouldn't sound like it does. I think the Conservatives have just, um, haven't really got enough detail in there really yet, but on the environment stuff, they're all sort of walking down the same road, so I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I, I think what I'm going to say is the, the manifesto, this is particularly on the environment side, the one that surprised me the most, and that would actually be the Lib Dems one, because I think that they've um, identified problems that weren't in the other two manifestos, things like the skills gap and and that sort of thing. And also, I mean, Alice said, you know, the, the, this is a climate crisis, and, you know, they the just seem to be a bit more actual thought and and interesting thought in the Lib Dem. I mean, we, we only touched on the Green Investment Bank, but, you know, that's quite a new radical idea, you know, for trying to encourage investment into the renewable energy space. So 
uh, I found the Lib Dem one quite an interesting read. Um, so the matrix that I explained <laughs> I made at the very beginning of this podcast episode, um, I can give you the results. So Oh, yes, roll. please. I too was surprised. Lib Dem came out clear top winner. Conservatives and Labour joint last. Yeah, I was, I think before reading the manifestos and just sort of seeing the headlines, the, the little snippets, I just presumed that Conservatives would have won on my part from a sort of supporting self-employed and small businesses. Labour would have got it really wrong and Lib Dem would have been somewhere straggling in between. But it's actually very clear that um, the Liberal Democrats have a progressive share of support for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and the way in which the working world is going. Um, so that was a nice surprise for me to learn that for this specific policy. Um, I think from my perspective on, on the environment side, I think, look, everyone, all the parties are very pro-environment. And I think once you get into these kind of numbers and ambitions, it becomes all much of a muchness. I think I think a lot can happen in the next 15 years in this sector. I think there are going to be huge changes in technology. Um, I think we've actually even surprised ourselves in society or, or industry's ability to to kind of adapt and grow and promote technology here. And I think that's going to grow ever faster over the next 10 years. So let's see what happens. But I, for me, they're, they're all very pro it. So I don't, I don't think I can choose one on that front. On the economy side, I think, look, as we discussed, I think the Labour Party has put forward some pretty bold, ambitious ideas in terms of borrowing and what it wants to do with that money. And I think all of us were slightly scratching our heads on whether spending it like that would 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 work i think the conservatives aren't being very they're not being very ambitious in terms of it's kind of steady as she goes and not really changing much and there's a mild tax benefit to people on an income tax basis um but no changes to corporation tax and income tax not income tax sorry capital gains tax which the other two parties are making quite big changes to so for me i find it very difficult because I don't know what the answer is. I think Labour's too ambitious, and I think I'd probably have my vote with the Liberal Democrats. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is going to come down to what happens with Brexit, which we haven't even discussed this evening. So that's my two cents. (laughs) Uh, I would probably summarise in the three areas that that I think affect me most in terms of economy, taxation and jobs. Um, On the economy, um, I feel like, just as you've just mentioned, Brexit is the Conservatives' obsession right now. And so they're really just looking at getting that done before even deciding what they're going to do on the economy. There wasn't anything in their manifesto that really jumped out to make me think that they were going to drive the country forward um, economically. Whilst Labour's spending is, again, frightening, um, I have no idea how they're planning to cost this, but in theory, you can understand why they want to renationalise Royal Mail and the railways and, and buses and different things and, you know, fibre broadband to try and get us closer to the levels of Singapore and other places. But the costings are just so beyond what anyone could really quantify that you do have to have concerns for the long term impact on our economy. And so there, I'd probably actually say on the economy, the Lib Dems come out with the most balanced approach, as unexpected as that might sound. You know, different things like investing over 100 billion on transport and energy, their green investment bank, as was mentioned, uh, uh, are lots of ways that they are trying to boost the economy, but 
be sensible about it at the same time, um, whilst also balancing it with the environment. On taxation, again, I think the Conservatives are stuck in their, their kind of austerity mentality. They're not planning to do much to, to really move the dial, where I think that taxation would need to increase to move the dial. Austerity has been awful for this country, not just in terms of GDP and GDP per capita, but but you know more in particular if you look at public services and, and the NHS and other things, it's been absolute shambles. Uh, and so to see that... The, Conservatives are not planning to increase taxation much, if at all. If anything, they're you know making it a bit easier at the bottom with with um, raising national insurance threshold, but you know keeping corporation tax the same uh, and not doing much else is is not really going to help increase revenues to spend elsewhere. Whilst um, Labour, I'd probably say have a, a reasonably balanced approach, even as someone who you know would probably be hit a little bit by. Labour taxation, I do understand where they're coming from when they say that it's for the many, not the few. And I think if you want to have an individualistic approach to, to the way that this country is run, then yes, you would be very anti-Labour's taxation policy of increasing corporation tax and raising tax on the highest earners. But this is a country that is at risk of becoming more and increasingly polarised between the top and the bottom if something isn't done to redress that balance. Um, so I am actually a fan of Labour's taxation, whilst I think uh, the Lib Dems haven't quite gone far enough. And on jobs, finally, again, the Conservatives not giving me much to shout about at all. I think that they are, again, focused on Brexit and just trying to make sure they get that sorted and will hopefully think about everything else afterwards. But their manifest manifesto doesn't tell me much to that extent. And then it's a real balancing act between Labour and the Lib Dems. As mentioned earlier, I think Labour are wanting to introduce a happier workforce with, you know, 32-hour working week and, and a ban on zero-hours contracts, where Lib Dem are probably being a bit more pragmatic in that they recognise that, if anything, our Labour force needs to be upskilled more than made happier. And so increasing uh, or closing the skills gap with that um, skills wallet worth up to £10,000 is a fantastic idea from my perspective because I know that we are falling behind uh, in so many industries because we have just a lack of um, skilled workforce, partly driven by Tony Blair and you know trying to send everyone to university when we do also need people doing apprenticeships and, and getting practical skills. Um, so this, I think, is going to help redress that in some ways. Bizarrely, the Lib Dems have two out of three from me, <laughs> Labour have one out of three, and the Conservatives are nowhere to be seen. Well, there we have it. Um, thank you guys so much, and thank you guys for listening to this episode. Well, that was a really interesting episode, especially for me, because to be honest, those are areas that I am not at all familiar with. Well, I can agree with you on that, because the environment is an area which I probably don't have that much background knowledge in so definitely educational for me but having said that if you want to hear more about the manifesto read you can follow us on at the manifesto read on twitter and instagram and please subscribe and review our podcast we need the likes we really do like us (laughs) (laughs) that's it i'm done (laughs) done. but like us but like us actually